just in PAs alone, there's over 130,000 PAs nationally, and there's over 250,000 nurse practitioners. It's a lot of people that we have that could help take care of these patients. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake Peekles. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Okay, welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today is another episode in our ongoing series covering the COVID crisis here in the United States. Today, we're very lucky to be joined by Jen Orozco. She's a PA here at Rush University, where I work as well, um, with the vascular team. And she's going to be joining us today to talk about the current situation at Rush and how the COVID crisis has changed the role of PAs and other advanced practice providers um, in the hospital, at least here at Rush. Uh, Jen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Um, for those of our listeners, you know, who, who don't know you, can you kind of tell us a bit about yourself? Give us some background. Sure. Uh, so I am one of the directors of advanced practice here, uh, and my role is to provide leadership and oversight and strategy to the more than 400 uh, advanced practice nurses and PAs across the system. And so on a, on a, any given day, I am here to help with operations as well as um, clinical uh, uh, redeployment and whatever else is going on in the APP world. Now, Jen, I got excited about having you on this show because I saw you on Fox News, I think it was, and you, uh, you're, you have a very compelling story, and it was in the midst of the coronavirus crisis. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on at Rush and, and how you got involved in all that? Yeah, so you know the the coronavirus obviously is is uh, something new and something we've never seen before, and this is really a, a great time where we have a group of individuals who are not physicians, um, but what we call advanced practice providers who have the skill set and the ability to take care of patients on the front lines and, and really make a difference in how we deliver and deploy that care. And we're lucky here at Rush, we have a very friendly advanced practice provider culture um, and physicians um, are very close uh, to APPs and work very closely on a, on a daily basis. And, and when this crisis hit, um, you know, we the first people that we went to were our physicians and our advanced practice providers to help deliver that care across the system. And from setting up new clinics to working in the emergency room to working in the ICU, um, PAs and, and APRNs have the training and the ability to provide that care um, and really become this extension of providers uh, to help take care of all these people uh, in at Rush and, and all over Chicagoland for that matter. Now, Jen, I've spoken a few times on previous episodes about uh, how things are at Rush from the perspective of the neurosurgery department, which is obviously a limited perspective, especially during this particular crisis. So for our listeners, could you give us a, a bit of a broader view throughout the hospital, just in terms of 
uh, case numbers, exactly how stretched personnel have been in the hospital, to, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, how are things in the hospital generally? You know, I think things are actually okay right now. We have done a good job at Rush of, of really being prepared for this. And, you know, I think sometimes um, that is who we are. Uh, and I know Rush tends to want to get ahead of these things. And, and the nice part about being here is right when this crisis hit, um, it became all hands on deck. And from a leadership perspective, from administration and all of the providers and physicians, APPs, nurses, everybody came right out of the woodwork to say, how are we going to help and how are we going to put things together in an organized fashion as best we can to provide care uh, across the system? And I know so many people who have um, worked day and night for the last month without a break to try and organize that effort. And I think um, the the stay-at-home orders in, in Illinois really helped us, but I I think this group of leaders that helped organize and redeploy everybody where they needed um, and really looking at that high level, what were the priority areas and what needed to happen first? Did they've really done a good job of doing that um, and, and figuring out where the need is and, and how we're going to deliver that care. So it's been really nice to be part of that group and be part of that leadership group. And every day I'm in there and I just I'm astounded at the numbers of cases that we're seeing um, and how it's rising. But I think the good news is, is that we're starting to see that flattening of the curve and which is exactly what we wanted from the beginning. And, and though it's tough and, and all of the um, frontline providers, residents, nurses, APPs that are delivering that care, I think the good news is, is that they feel safe and they feel ready and that we're ready to handle this. Now, Jen, um, I, I will say that our audience is, since it's a neurosurgery podcast, mostly doctors or residents or uh, attending physicians and people aspiring to be neurosurgeons, but we also have a fairly large following of APPs. And just for the listeners who don't know, APPs are generally advanced practice provi- providers, something like a PA or a nurse practitioner, and it varies a little bit by state, right? So in terms of what that designation might be. But I, I have to ask you a question about this because Right about the time that I saw your interview on Fox News, I received an email from uh, one of our hospitals. I I will not mention which hospital. And essentially what it said, and this was like a sort of a hospital-wide release email, like, you know, 5,000 recipients, saying something like this. In the ICU, the ICU patients will be essentially quarantined. The nurses will take care of them. And of course, most of our ICUs have PAs and nurse practitioners that take call in addition to residents. And those PAs and nurse practitioners will be the front line. And then our pulmonologists, anesthesiologists, neurologists, our ICU doctors will kind of hang back and not really sort of go into the rooms. I, it struck me as like a really, really bad message to send. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that? Have you, have you heard similar type statements or seen similar type documents? Um, you know, I have to say, I, I don't think I saw that one, um, but I, I will say from a from an optics point of view, that does seem a little bit strange because I don't think that there's any person of value over the other one, right? And right. that I think what, what we really tried to focus on here is creating the best team um, that we can that we can create. And for Rush, to us, that team is physicians, APPs, residents, nurses, respiratory therapists, you name it, 
um, but having the right skill set and really focusing on, well, if we took, if we had an intensivist um, and we had another subspecialty attending, how many APPs and residents could work theoretically with this group uh, as well as nursing, as well as nurses to deliver that care in the best manner possible? Um, because the reality is we didn't have enough in intensivists and, and we don't, right? Or, or ICU APPs or fellow, um, you know, physicians that work in these areas because we had to create ICUs across the system, right? And so we, we really worked as a team to say, all right, what is the best model? How do we want to deliver that care? And I, I you know, we worked on those models for Gosh, we had to get that done in in a matter of days, but it was a a lot of physician and and resident and APP experts and nursing that said, okay, this is this is what we think is best, and how do we how do we support and deliver that care? So, um, you know, to answer your question, I haven't um, I haven't seen a, a a ton of that, but I. You know, that, that's not a message I know we value here at Rush, and it really is just about who is best on the team and how do, can we take care of these patients in the best manner possible. So I'm fascinated to, to hear more about what that team structure is that you settled on. Um, can you, you know, without getting too much into the weeds, could you briefly describe for us how the teams are looking now? I'm sure you've reallocated people from different departments. What is the COVID team on the ground looking like in each of these pop-up units? So the team itself, and this is what we worked on, we really went specialty by specialty. Um, when we sat in a room um, with with all our masks on, right, and every, everything that we needed to do for social distancing, and we said, okay, um, for you know, the emergency department, for the ICU, for the hospitalist team, based on specialty, who are our, our people in those areas, right? Which physicians, APPs, residents on these teams should go to the ICU? Which, what are the skill sets that are needed in the ICU? Same for the hospitalist, same for the ED um, attending. And then once we had that, because we didn't want to dip into the same pool for everybody, right? Once we went through that exercise, then we were able to really thoughtfully say, okay, these people have the skill set. Now, what is the right number ratio based on number of beds using best practices and some other things? And and we, I think we went over that for, for good two days straight of what does this pyramid look like and how many, uh, you know, attendings and APPs would you need um, and residents would you need to make that possible so that everybody, if they've never set foot in an ICU, not set foot, but haven't, don't work there regularly, right? Yeah. Um, how could they feel okay working in an ICU setting? And, and the thought was, well, if I had an intensivist that, w- that was over the team and I also had a subspecialty attending and some other subspecialty residents that were there um, and subspecialty APPs, I would feel okay because I have this great skill set all together as a group, but I still could go all the way up as high as needed to make some critical decisions. So Jen, we're going through a similar transition now, which is that you know all hands on deck, as you said, and we have obviously nurse practitioners and PAs that do outpatient, that do uh, general family health, that do subspecialties, ones that work in the operating room, right? Where do you, how do you make those matches? Because obviously people want to be in working sort of in their skill concentration or skill set, right? And as you said, the ICU is kind of one of the big burdens, right? So how are you 
cobbling this together? Like who's fitting well where? Maybe you could help us with that. Yeah. So if we talk about the ICU, so, you know, what, what happens in the ICU, right? We have critically ill, very sick patients. Um, and what we, and also some who require procedures, right? So we tried to take a look at our procedural um, and surgical areas first um, to, to figure out who saw sick patients in the hospital, as well as who had some procedural skill set, so that if a line needed to go in or an intubation, whatever it was, um, that they would have that skill set going into the ICU. We also focused on our uh, cardiopulmonary folks, um, and that that since this virus is really um, affecting that area in particular, those with those expertise um, were really highly sought after in those areas. And so, so once we went through some of that exercise, um, we had a we had a here's our first group of individuals that we wanted, and then the second group, which were some surgical people and maybe some highly skilled medicine folks who worked on the inpatient side, but not necessarily critically ill. Those were our second line, and then our third line was really some of our outpatient providers who, um, you know, are very um, skilled from a medicine standpoint, but don't necessarily always work on the inpatient side. So, so we created these levels of teams and backups that um, if we exhausted those folks, we could move into the next pool of people. We had a little bit of volunteer, um, you know, the, the nice part about being an APP is most nurse practitioners and PAs, before they went to school, had to have healthcare experience before they set foot into NP or PA school. And most of them have a lot of experience. They were paramedics, um, they were EMTs, they were critical care nurses. Um, and so that also taking into account some of the expertise of the APPs prior to them um, becoming board certified has really been helpful to, um, it, to bring some of those those uh, that skill set in to um, into the ICU, and the nice part about APPs and and you know we have some flexibility with them that sometimes the physicians don't necessarily have the flexibility, but the APPs are really taught in that manner from the moment they step step into school, and we're able to flex them up and down um, depending on where they are in their career to say, hey, we need you to take care of this group of patients now. And, and they're, they're able to kind of turn that on and off with some guidance and some oversight, which is pretty nice. Now, that idea of flexibility is very interesting. And it actually brings me to, to one of the um, most interesting questions I wanted to ask you today, Jen. You know, I, I've heard at different institutions around the country, depending on how hard a given city's been hit, fellow level physicians are being given attending privileges there's discussion of um, activating and mobilizing medical students who are about to graduate in New York City to function as intern level physicians, um, at least within Rush or to your knowledge, anywhere in the country. Has there been any expansion of privileges or level of practice for APPs during this crisis? Yeah, so that, that question is kind of twofold. So in the areas specifically where you're talking about in New York, uh, especially as well as California and Washington, they have really been having some critical discussions about PA and NP students, uh, similar to med students, getting boarded and licensed and going right out to work because most of those board centers are closed because of the COVID crisis, but they have completed right. their training, everything except this board exam. Um, and 
people are in desperate need of providers. So we're that trigger, I don't think, has been pulled yet for NPs and PAs, but we're really close to pulling that trigger because the need is so great. In terms of um, the other half of this, which is the expansion of scope, and I actually don't, I don't like to think of it as expansion of scope because we're not really expanding scope. PAs and NPs do this all the time. You know, I have, I have. PAs, if you talk to the PAs in New York or the NPs for that matter, they're in the ICU. They are the frontline provider intubating. Um, they're, they're doing thoracotomies. They're, they're doing, uh, you know, central lines. Those are the ones taking care of patients every day. And they have for many, many years. And they do it in collaboration with physicians. Um, but, the, but they don't necessarily, we're not necessarily changing scope. The thing that we're trying to do is remove this mandatory supervision slash collaboration requirement on paper with the state that usually ties up NPs and PAs when you want to redeploy them. And most states, and especially for PAs in general, nurse practitioners have full practice authority in 20, 22 states, 23 maybe. But for PAs, they have a lot of paperwork that they need to send to the state. And, you know, you can't redeploy them to different areas without doing all of that paperwork, as well as having physicians on file, um, you know, to, to give prescriptive authority and all kinds of things. And in a crisis like this, that doesn't work very well. And so, you know, just in six states alone, so Maine, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Louisiana, and Tennessee, they have waived all of those requirements during this crisis. And that's really what my, my um, as you said, when I was on Fox News, that really is what the ask is. The ask is for all governors to remove those and waive those requirements so that these people can be redeployed to be frontline providers in areas where they need it most. Um, you know, for example, if I could go to New York right now and help, I would have to go through a whole rigmarole of paperwork um, in order to be licensed in that state, as well as then find a collaborating physician, fill out the paperwork um, and, and get it all in. And it could be weeks. And as we have found out very unfortunately in New York and in some other areas, we don't have weeks <laughs> to, to be fooling around with all of that. We need people providing care today. Um, so that's really what some of this basis is with that. So, Jen, um, you know, we've, we watch the news a lot now, and, and there's a lot of discussion with doctors. There's a lot of discussion with uh, nurses, in particular ICU nurses, right? And you hear their opinions, their concerns. You represent a, a lot of folks in your profession. What are the kinds of concerns you're hearing about, uh, you know, not at Rush per se, but among AVPs out there? What, what are their concerns with this pandemic? Are they the same as with doctors and nurses, or is it a little different? Yeah, no, I would say they're exactly the same. I, I think we're all in the same boat. They're doing the same things. Um, you know, we, we've lost a couple of uh, APPs out of New York, I've heard already, and in some other states that were providing frontline care. I mean, people are concerned about, um, one, having enough, you know, protective equipment while they're at work. They're concerned about coming home to their families and their children, Um they're concerned, uh, or their loved one or their partner, they're, they're concerned about 
um, you know, working so many hours and the exhausted, you know, the exhaustion that comes along with that and really the unknown, right? I mean, we all signed up for this in, in some way, shape or form. And I, I don't mean to sound it, have it sound like that, but, but we're medical providers. I mean, we took an oath. This is what we do. This is what we trained for. But at the same time, you feel very torn um, personally about, you know, bringing something home or, or um, you know, passing something along. So it just adds to the anxiety of, um, you know, of being a provider in these times. And, you know, I know that some patients, I think I've saw, I've, you know, I follow social media closely. Um, I'm the legislative chairman in the, in the state of Illinois, as well as sit on the national board. And the concerns that are coming from the APPs are one, all of those things that I just discussed, but also that a lot of people who have the ability to take care of patients aren't being allowed to right now. And so I know PAs and and I'm sure NPs have started petitions across the country to allow, uh, to help, um, to help remove those barriers to practice. And they're calling on the White House, they're calling on the states, and they're hoping that um, they can get those removed so they can go take care of these patients on their front line. And, and, you know, as I said before, there's a hundred, just in PAs alone, there's over 130,000 PAs nationally. And there's over 250,000 nurse practitioners. It's a lot of people that we have that could help take care of these patients. But because of their outdated, these outdated regulatory burdens, we just can't move them in fast enough. Wow. Well, Jen, I mean, just to respect everyone's time, I think, uh, I think we should wrap shortly. But just considering all of those uh, concerns you just shared with us, you know, our listeners, as Dr. Wang said, include physicians, medical students, uh, nurses, APPs around the country. Is there any message you'd like to share with all of them before we close? Yeah. No, I would like to say that APPs are willing and able, and they want to collaborate with physicians um, and other members of the healthcare team. There's this misconception um, among many groups that PAs and nurse practitioners are just vying for independent practice and don't want anything to do with physicians. And and I have to fundamentally say, I don't believe that. Um, And I, I think a lot of, um, you know, when, when we work in environments here, such as Rush, they don't believe that either. And I just hope that that message to surgeons, I've, you know, I've been a vascular PA for 17 years, worked with wonderful surgeons. I work autonomously half the time. The physicians aren't even there <laughs> in the clinic or on the floor, um, but I collaborate with them. I'm not trying to, you know, go hang up a shingle and, and go work on my own, but it doesn't mean we should be mandating how PAs and NPs practice. You know, we, we all went to school and I, I think that we're all partners in this. And I think that there's enough patients to go around that we can all take care of them. If we can just do it together, we can get it done. Great. Well, Jen, thank you so much for joining us today on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Keep up the good work here at Rush, okay? Thank you for having me. Much appreciated.